reading from the Gospel of John in the morning, so give a Bible and you let us turn with me. We're going to the end of chapter 12. This is the first half of the book of John. It's laid out in two parts, a very public ministry and there a very personal ministry. As I'll be explaining as we go through, it's kind of called the Book of Signs and the Book of Glory. Uh, Jesus up through chapter 12 has been revealing himself inside of the world through many single miracles and declaring through these who he is and who he has come to uh, be to the world and for us. Yeah, starting next Sunday, we will be in the upper room. Jesus then for several chapters will have some final precious thoughts with his disciples. I'm looking forward to this part very much. And uh, look forward to starting next week to be in the upper room of Jesus with you. But now in chapter 12, we read from 27 down to the end of the chapter. I'm calling this sermon, This Is Your Final Notice. <clears throat> Picking up what we left off last week from John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, when the people who stood by heard it and said that it had thundered, others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, you have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? But Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was given to him. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of, the, of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I 
by Jewish rulers will soon be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. A large part of this problem is that the people didn't understand who Jesus really was or the kind of king that he had come to be. They had their own mind made up. They had their own expectations that Jesus would lead them in revolt against the Romans. Well, if Jesus can raise the dead, which he just did in the case of Lazarus, the Roman legions would be a piece of cake to him. Many people today have their own idea of Jesus similarly, or at least what they would like him to be. And it's very important that we understand the real Jesus, or one day we will be just as disappointed as those crowds. Now, a few years ago, the eminent uh, Yale historian... Yaroslav Pelikan wrote a book called Jesus Through the Centuries. And in that book, Pelikan described how, in various ways, people saw Jesus differently through the ages, and they always tended to see the Jesus that they wanted to see. 
For example, some in the early, uh, early Christianity coming out of Greek paganism saw Jesus as the great philosopher, the one for whom Plato and Aristotle were forerunners. For the medieval monks, Jesus was the first true ascetic. During the Enlightenment, he became the world's greatest teacher of morals. During the 20th century, the communists hailed him as the preeminent liberator of the poor when they tried to use Jesus, otherwise they turned against him, and the industrialists claimed him as the founder of rights and free market economics. Gandhi and Martin Luther King appealed to him as the exemplar of their movements of passive nonviolent resistance, whereas the liberation theologians appealed to his more, shall we say, aggressive side, for example, cleansing the temple or his prophecies of violent judgment against the wicked rich, in order to hail the Jesus that was the ultimate revolutionary of social change. Will the real Jesus please stand up? We can conclude anything we like, it seems, about this man, about, so many, about whom so many things has been said. What are we to rep- respond? Well, first of all, we must admit that in all these ideas people have had, they have an element of truth to them. Jesus was the world's greatest philosopher, before whom Plato and Aristotle were mere schoolboys, at best, in comparison. He was the only perfect ascetic. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He was the world's greatest teacher of morals, no doubt, and did, in fact, teach more perfectly, more persuasively, more helpfully the love of God to God and man, uh, uh, of God and man, rather than any other teacher has ever come close to doing. He was and is the great champion of the poor and needy. He is the author of our human rights and liberties and responsibilities. And in general, we can say that as the word from heaven, as the way, the truth, and the life, as the personal embodiment of the love of God, any truth, anything good, anything pure, anything loving, every just instinct must find its origin in him. However, the problem is when you take what you want, when you chop up Jesus to suit you and you just take this little bit, then you can be singing the praises of Jesus on Sunday and you can be among those who crucify him on Friday. Please remember this in our day, whenever you hear people invoke the name of Jesus on behalf of their favorite political issue or social cause. Even in his own day, Jesus was treated this way, hailed by the people as the leader of their cause. They cheered Jesus on his triumphal entry because they had their own desires in mind. But they did not in first place, honor Jesus as the Savior of sinners. Sinners such as themselves and you and me. And until Jesus is honored as that, Jesus will not do any good at all, especially not some chopped up bit of Jesus. The Hosannas were in fact just a cruel way of rejecting the Lord. And by Friday, everybody knew it. The angel had said at his birth, he shall save his people from their sins. That was his grand 
errand in the world. And he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be lifted up. This to say the death by which he was going to die. It is time for the Son to be glorified, by which, of course, he means crucified. Now, if you confess Jesus as your Savior, it turns out you get him as your philosopher, your teacher, your liberator, your example for life, and everything else. But you refuse him as your Savior, and you get nothing else from him, whatever temporary appearances may suggest. He had come into the world supremely to die. Up to this point, he says, my hour has not come, but now he says it has. And therefore, where we began reading, Jesus says his soul is troubled. I hate to trouble people, of course, except in this case, because the trouble that he's speaking about is the cross, which now looms large before him, on which he will take away my sins. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say, he asks? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I say all this by way of review and of introducing the passage to you as Jesus now concludes his ministry by speaking primarily of what he has come to do, to be crucified. Father, glorify your name. And a response sounds from heaven. And there's this interesting stark contrast of responses. Some hear a voice, others heard only thunder. And I found myself asking why. Why does one person hear one thing and another person hear another? Except that that's what's happened throughout the whole book so far. The tension is highlighted throughout this, this passage. To some, Jesus has been revealed. From others, Jesus has been concealed. And I'd like us to consider this passage today under those two headings. Jesus revealed and Jesus concealed. First, Jesus revealed. In our passage, Jesus is revealed, and he reviews the most important things that he had taught in the last 12 chapters. And so I'd like to summarize it for you briefly in three parts or three subpoints, if you like, if you're taking notes. First, that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Uh, various places in this passage, but here in verse 44, for instance, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. This is what he has revealed himself to be all along, the most wonderful, the most astonishing thing that Jesus could possibly say. And what he has been saying from the beginning is this, that God has come among men in Jesus to reveal the love and glory, grace and truth of God, that he is the image of the invisible God. He has come forth from God, and he says, soon I'll be returning to God. He is called at the beginning the word that proceeds from God, that reveals God, that was with God from the beginning, and that was God from the beginning. Now, it would be far easier, of course, if we didn't have these things about Jesus in the Bible. It would be far easier to believe a story of a mere religious teacher without these divine claims and miracles. Certainly. I mean, that goes without saying. But not to believe the story of the life, sorry, (laughs) 
Many people, especially in the 20th century, sought to remove the divine claims of Jesus and to cleanse the Bible from the miraculous. And my point is, the whole appearance of a divine person on earth is itself a stupendous miracle, and all the individual miracles rest on that great miracle. And they are what the Bible resents them as being, true testimonies of this stupendous central claim of the book, that Jesus is very God of very God. He told the crowds back in chapter 10, if I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Now, in the 20th century, they tried to take away the divine claims and miracles and left us a very human Jesus. It was always a colossal failure from the beginning for obvious reasons. It's the central message of the book. The Gospel of John is structured around this uh, Jesus revealing himself as divine, particularly through these seven signs and seven I am sayings in which he is making the greatest of claims. It says in verse 1 that he is God. It says at the climax, uh, Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. If, if you're trying to clear out this from the Gospels, you have nothing of worth left. You simply can't take the divine claims of Jesus out. He who has seen me has seen the Father, he says. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. One modern writer explains it this way. There is, in fact, no God behind the back of Jesus. Jesus is the open heart of God, the very love and life of God, poured out to redeem humankind, the mighty hand and power of God, stretched out to heal and to save sinners. And so we are to see in Jesus from the beginning to the end, as he reminds us in his parting words, we are to see God's perfections on display in a way that we can relate to. We can see in him God's love, God's compassion, God's wisdom, God's goodness to us. Christianity is preeminently a religion about knowing God. That is eternal life, to know him. And so we are to understand, even in these chapters that follow, brothers, sisters, that the one whom we will see carrying his cross to Calvary is God. That God has become incarnate to be murdered by his own creatures and deliver them from sin and death. And if that's true, then the world needs to rethink what God himself is like. What kind of God is this? Who would come in God the Son, bleed and die for us because of our rebellion against him? This is not the kind of God we would imagine him to be. And the cross is only the cross because the one who hung on, hung on it there was and is God incarnate. Sin, you see, is a much greater problem than we had previously understood. But this tells us that where sin abounded, grace has much, much, much more abounded. If this one has put away our sins, then, brothers and sisters, they are gone indeed, and we are reconciled to God in him. This is, by way of review, in so many ways, the first and most important thing I'll call your attention to from the passage. Second, that Jesus is not only the Lord, but the light. 
I've already mentioned this some, so I'll be a little more brief here. Uh, they, they say, verse 34, who is this son of man? A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And he takes it up, of course, one more time in the final part of the passage. This is a summary of what Jesus had taught repeatedly throughout the book. At the beginning, John introduced Jesus as the light that gives light to every man coming into the world. Or Jesus says himself in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Or John 3, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, but men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and so forth. A world without Christ is a world in spiritual and moral darkness, a hopelessness, a, a, a shroud, a death shroud lies over humanity. And yet into this deep darkness of death, the light of God has broken. I put this quote into your bulletin in the back on the mid-second century, Clement of Alexandria, that Christ came to turn our sunsets into sunrises, the sunset of sin into the sunrise of forgiveness, the sunset of despair into the sunrise of hope, and the sunset of death into the sunrise of life. Jesus has come to bring light in all the rich meaning that that brings us in the Bible. He's referred to that many times. Uh, I'll just say that uh, November 9th, 1965, where were you when the lights went out? People used to ask. Some 30 million people on that night in the Northeast lost power. One man wrote, elevators and skyscrapers stopped where they were, most of them between floors. People had to walk down from the top of the highest buildings in the world, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 floors to get on the street and try to get home. Restaurants couldn't serve meals. Shopping malls and movie theaters were totally dark. People couldn't get to the hospitals. Mothers about to give birth had great difficulties. People were trapped in darkness. Trapped in darkness. Well, people still today are trapped in the darkness of this world. But Jesus says, I have come that you would not stumble, but have the light of life. Will you not pray, O light of the world, enlighten my heart and mind and soul and life that I may be the son of light that you are describing here and walk in the light. Jesus is the light. Third, he reviews here by saying that he is the life. The life. Uh, A couple different passages, but we can take it from the end here. If anyone hears my words, verse 47, I don't judge him. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me does not receive my word and does not receive my words has that which judges him the word that i have spoken will judge him in the last day for i have not spoken on my own authority but the father who sent me gave a command what i should say and what i should speak and i know that his command is everlasting life life It's not just an invitation. It's not just uh, a good news being heralded. It's a command. Choose life. 
as it says in Deuteronomy. The noun life occurs 36 times in the gospel, more than any other New Testament book. The verb another 15 times to live. It's a great theme. And what does Jesus mean here about this command to live? Does that mean that so that we, when we believe in him, if we die, that our souls will be with him forever? Or that we look forward to the resurrection of the dead? Well, it, it certainly does mean that as well. Death has been overcome by Jesus in his resurrection. But the grand emphasis of this book from beginning till now is that life and life eternal has begun in Jesus. There is a kind of living that we are called to now. Chapter 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Reminded of the cartoon that uh, showed an advertisement for a seeker-sensitive funeral service. It reads, quote, Seeker-sensitive funeral. No body, no casket, no mention of the D-word. Well, Jesus doesn't mind the D-word. He specializes it. The wages of sin is death. And death has described from the beginning everything that death, that sin produces. But Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. It is life that he's come to give. Not just the natural life of which he is the author, but eternal life. Not enough to be born in a Christian home. I read this week that Hugh Hefner was raised in a minister's home. And of course, Joseph Stalin studied for the priesthood. Mao Zedong was brought up under missionary teaching. Mere birth will not do no matter what your advantage. You must be born again. Rebirth is required. And this new birth into new life is what he has come to bring. The command of Jesus is to believe in him, for he who believes in me, he says, shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. This is Jesus' final words to the world, rehearsing these great truths that he's taught them. Nothing new, but he says it in the most urgent way crying out that you would not turn but but you that you would not turn away well point 1 Jesus revealed revealed as the lord as the light and as the life a few other things in this passage i won't be able to cover it turns in various ways but this is a review of what we have seen and i hope i've hit the most important things nevertheless you notice that also this chapter ends On a melancholy note, Jesus concealed. Jesus concealed. Verse 37, although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. In other words, they refused to believe in him in spite of the miracles that he had performed before their very eyes. Now, faith that is based on miracles is not the best faith, but it's a lot better than no faith at all. We certainly understand faith in the presence of so many miracles, but unbelief so stubborn in the face of so many astonishing miracles? How can that be? Does it not require some explanation? 
That explanation of what happens is given in context. Verse 38, they didn't believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who's believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? From chapter 53, that famous passage of our Lord Jesus, by the way. John goes on, therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, different portion now, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, in turn, that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw Jesus' glory, his glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, to be sure, this is a hard thing. A hard thing to hear, and a hard thing to understand. And someone will say, hey, where is John 3.16 in all of this? Where is God doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but that he turn? Well, in the Gospel of John, the great message is indeed what God has done in order to save sinners. But it also shows us various ways about how they react to that message. To be sure, we have already heard a great deal in the gospel about this rejection as well. In John 9.39, we heard the Lord say, For judgment I came into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. For judgment I came into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who will not see, uh, those who see will become blind. Jesus means those who think themselves wise, righteous, proud, especially, are the very ones who cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, even if it knocks them in the head. Those are the ones who didn't need a Redeemer to die for them. They didn't need the forgiveness that only the cross could purchase for them. They wished for a God to leave them alone, and that is at last precisely what he did. And these are the people from whom even these great words of Jesus are concealed. God's hardening is a judicial hardening. Those who have, Jesus says elsewhere, will be given more, and they'll have an abundance. But to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. C.S. Lewis, you remember, has this interesting part in one of his books about how the, uh, the, uh, one of the, uh, animals, uh, the, the animals are talking, and the professor, at the beginning, he starts to tell himself, well, it's impossible that animals should talk, and the more that he convinces himself that, the more that he cannot hear, he cannot understand. The one who will not eventually cannot. And of course, uh, those who can do and have more. And so it is with Jesus. This one who came into the world to give his life a ransom for many, who came in to save, and no one can accuse him of not being loving when he says such things. No one can accuse him of being unfeeling and uncaring. However hard it is for us to accept or even understand 
why God should say that he has blinded men's eyes and deadened their hearts so that they can neither see nor understand. It comforts us, comforts us and silences us to realize that it was the Savior himself who announced this, the good shepherd, the light of the world, the suffering servant, and that he was not the first to whom this had happened, that Isaiah had first applied this to his generation, and so he was right in applying it to his as well. And so it is, you see, that Jesus is the knife edge that divides humanity. He says, actually, in so many ways, I did not come this time to judge, but the word that I spoke, it has made a clean separation, you see. Those who would hear have an abundance. Those who would not hear, even what they heard, will be taken away. And so it is that the Lord hardens those whom he will harden. It is a judicial hardening, but it is the answer why, even despite so many miracles before them, they would not believe. Now, in conclusion, when we think about what that means and implies for the people who have so hardened their hearts, the words of John Wesley come to mind to me, if a man will not believe God, he'll believe anything. If a man will not believe God, he'll believe anything. Why are human beings so bored or offended with the truth of God? How is it that every time in the spring we have this new book or magazine article that comes out, the real Jesus, oh, and everybody rushes to buy it because, well, you know it's going to be something different than what you've heard, but maybe there's a better Jesus because the Jesus so revealed as Lord and light and love is not to their taste at all. They are looking for another Jesus, maybe one who will lead them in revolt against the Romans or whatever it is. They have their own ideas. Human beings are bored or offended with the truth of God, and they are therefore attracted to and willing to believe and even commit themselves to utter nonsense. Right? Most people in, more people in Europe today consult psychics than go and worship in churches. I can't understand it. I will never understand it. But this explains it perfectly. We read in 2 Thessalonians that those who refuse the truth, who do not love the truth, uh, God gives them a powerful delusion so that they believe the lie. And so it is, no matter what they will not believe. The best arguments, the most attractive presentations of those arguments, the most compelling reasons, the most beautiful Christian lives, the most dramatic transformation of their friends and the power of grace makes no impression. Why? Because of what John has told us from the beginning. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Light has come into the world, and yet men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. There is this division, a division that we find at the very last words of our Lord Jesus. Now, there is no injustice with God. Please don't misunderstand me. No man ever receives from God anything else but what he deserves and what he has repeatedly asked for. Remember that. God never once turns away any sinner who comes to him pleading for life. If there is someone here today who wonders, would God accept him or her? I tell you, you put him to the test. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. His command is eternal life. He cries it out to them in a loud voice. His last public words. He's commanded eternal life. He, of all people, would not lie to anyone about that. You try him at his word. And yet, if you will not, 
who is to blame? The same one who hung on the cross for sinners has said, He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. People still have desires for their own Jesus. They may say in effect to the Lord, I'll believe you, I'll follow you, I'll serve you, if you do this for that, for me. The Lord has said, no, you give up your life, your hopes, your plans. You surrender them to me, he says. He who loves his life, verse 25, will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's the deal. You give up your life, your hopes, your plans, you surrender them to me, and I will give you back your life far better than you had it before. That is faith, and that is why comparatively few people live by faith, because that is a daring business. To give up your life that you may gain it back from Jesus. It's absolutely the right thing to do and the sensible thing to do. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has committed so many miracles into these testimonies, but it is not the natural thing to do. That is why it's hard to live by faith. But you come to him as the light, and you will become children of light, he says. I read a story about a man who received a second notice from the IRS that his tax payment was overdue. Unless it were immediately forthcoming, he would face legal action. The man hurried to the IRS office with his payment in hand and said, I would have paid sooner, but I never received your first notice. The clerk said, we ran out of first notices. Besides, we discovered that second notices are so much more effective. (laughs) Well, this is, if you like, an important final notice. Jesus' words here are not the first nor the second but they are his last to the world. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household. His command is eternal life. Don't ignore the notice. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what uh, amazing and gracious words, so perplexing to us at times to see your working throughout the world and yet It is the only explanation. We receive it. We bow before your majesty and we say, O Lord, may the Lord himself, the light and the love of God incarnate, so lead us forward. The one who did not come to judge but to save, may he save us truly and indeed. We would serve him And follow him as it's written that if anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Honor us. Honor everyone today, here today, with this certain knowledge of Jesus, or if necessary, the joy of eternal life.